want to invite all our listeners to join our Facebook group. You can find us on Facebook under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is a public group. Everyone is welcome, so please join in. You can find out about upcoming episodes in advance. You can submit questions to our upcoming guests. It's also a place for you to share your thoughts on episodes that we've already recorded and to suggest topics for new episodes as well as guests you'd like to hear from. So please go check us out under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. Today, we're broadcasting on Facebook Live, so I welcome our audience uh, who is watching as well as listening. Uh, I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about the NATO summit that's currently going on, as well as President Trump's upcoming summit uh, with Russian President Vladimir Putin. I'm joined by Ambassador Ivo Dalder, who's the president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and also the co-author of an upcoming um, book on U.S. foreign policy called The Empty Throne. Welcome, Ivo. It's good to have you here. Glad to be back. So, Uh, The frame for today is we've got a NATO summit that is getting started and will happen uh, here today and tomorrow. And then on Monday, uh, uh, President Trump travels to Helsinki to meet with President um, Putin. And President Trump started off the summit um, with fireworks, as people thought that he might, really harsh talk about our allies in NATO. In one of his tweets, he said, many countries in NATO, which are expected which we are expected to defend, are not only short of their current commitment of 2%, which is low, but they're also delinquent for many years in payments that have not been made. Will they reimburse the United States? So he's laid out a really hard challenge about the costs of defense and what our allies should be doing. How should we read this? Is he accurate? So a couple of things uh, in that. First, uh, uh, the president has really reduce NATO to an accounting exercise. And the question of the value of NATO is on how much what country is spending on defense. But NATO isn't an accounting exercise. It's not even a country club. It's a security alliance in which we, as an ally, pledge to defend other allies. And the only time that that security alliance actually had to operationalize itself was in September 11, 2001 when for the first and only time in its 69-year history, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization decided to invoke what's called Article 5, that an attack against one is an attack against all. And that's what it did after the attack on the U.S. uh, World Trade Center and and the Pentagon uh, by uh, by terrorists coming, trained from, and coming from Afghanistan. And as a result of that attack, NATO first invoked Article 5, and then for the last 17 years has been part and parcel of a response to that attack in Afghanistan, in which tens, hundreds of thousands of NATO soldiers over the last 17 years have been deployed to provide security and protection, not for themselves in the first instance, but for the United States. And indeed, hundreds, thousands of NATO countries have suffered casualties and deaths as a result of that conflict. That's what NATO is about not some accounting exercise. 
But in the accounting exercise, though, one of the other things NATO provides is deterrence. And I worked in the Senate back in the 1980s, and we talked about burden sharing and are the allies doing enough to contribute to, to the defense? The Obama administration, of course, was the administration that negotiated the 2% um, um, goal for NATO allies to contribute to the defense. Does President Trump have a legitimate point inside all of this rhetoric. Is there a legitimate point about uh, allies contributing to their defense? No, there's a a legitimate point that, by by the way, every president since Harry Truman in 1952 has made, which is that Europe needs to contribute more to its defense. Uh, And uh, in, in 2014, after a long period of cuts in defense spending by, Europe, by Europeans, in part because of the economic crisis, but really because the threat directly to Europe's security had declined significantly with the end of the Soviet Union and indeed the decline of Russia as a major power. 2014 changed all that. That's when Russia invaded Ukraine, annexed Crimea, and as a result of a push by the United States and a couple of other allies, there was an agreement reached that said two things. Those allies who spend 2% on G- of GDP on defense should continue to do so. And those who don't should move towards that 2% target within a decade, that is 2024. And indeed, in the last four years, non-US, European, uh, non-U.S. NATO defense spending has gone up every single year for a total of $87 billion in increased money. President Trump has made a big deal about this, and he's right to make a big deal about it. But he should also celebrate what has already happened. Uh, and that's an important part uh, of, of what this alliance should be doing in Brussels. Yes, remind people, let's stick to the agreement that we reached. And indeed, they have now reaffirmed that commitment uh, in, in, in Brussels. But also, let's push uh, NATO forward in a whole variety of other ways in which the alliance is strong. So just to push one more piece on this, I mean, many people in the Trump administration say this uh, this approach is actually working. I mean, even the secretary general of NATO said that uh, last year saw the biggest increase in defense spending across Europe and Canada in 25 years since the uh, beginning of 2017. Um, uh, there are more three times more allies who are on track to meet the 2024 deadline up from five to 16 of the NATO allies. This is messy. This is ugly. But is it is it working? Yes, there is an increase in defense spending, and President Trump is one of three reasons why. The first and most important reason why is because Russia now poses a security threat. The increase has started in 2014, well before Donald Trump even thought about running for president, let alone being president. And those increases have gone each and every year. The second reason is European economies have recovered. So there is more money available to spend on defense. When you don't have to take care of unemployment in the same way that you used to, you can find new uh, revenue sources for defense. And then the third is that the United States has made very clear it's important to the United States that you do this. And because allies want to be good allies, because they want the United States to be on their side if it ever were to be the case that they were attacked, they're going to spend more on defense. And the Secretary General, who is of course, interested in, a, in a, uh, a, a successful summit is going to give Donald Trump all the credit that he uh, w- would like to have uh, on this issue. But let me add one piece which I think is important because the president keeps uh, saying, as you said in the tweet, not only that the allies are delinquent, which they're not, but that they owe the United States vast sums of money, which they don't. 
and, and just to, to put that to rest, each country determines for itself how much and where and on what it's going to spend uh, for defense. We determined on the basis of our security requirements in Europe, in Asia, uh, uh, at sea, in the air, uh, in space, where we want to spend our defense dollars. And that's what the Germans do, and it's what the Estonians do, and it's what uh, the Norwegians do. Uh, yes, it should get to 2% of GDP, but it's a national decision. If you don't, in fact, increase it by as much as the U.S. thinks you should increase it, it doesn't mean that we, the United States, pay more. It's not like there's a kitty that needs to be filled, and if someone doesn't fill it, somebody else does. Uh, it's just that you don't have the same capabilities you otherwise would. That's not necessarily good for the overall security, but the idea that the United States needs to pay less uh, when the Europeans pay more is just wrong. We're paying what we need to pay for our security, just as the Germans in defining their security will pay what they need to pay. There's no delinquency here. There's nothing to be owed to the United States. It's a question of mutual commitments to each other, of which spending as well as defense uh, are opposite sides of the same coin. And is there a downside to President Trump making such a big deal of, of this issue in the context of the summit? The downside is that it's dividing the alliance. Uh, and a divided alliance is a weaker alliance, particularly when you, you want to confront uh, Russia with a strong united stance to say, don't even try anything uh, with regard to our security or our territorial uh, integrity or our political independence. So. If you keep on pushing on this area, even raise the stakes, as the president did, said it's not 2%, let's make it 4%, which is more than the United States pays uh, as a percentage of GDP on defense. It just, it, it's divisive. It will be regarded as not particularly useful to having a strong united alliance. Our ability to do what we need to do to deter Russia, to meet the security challenges we have around the world, is strengthened if, you're, if we're united with our allies and it's weakened if we're divided. So let me push on this a little bit to uh, how much does the division really matter? Because you laid out a scenario where Russia's aggressive action in the Ukraine, Crimea, resulted in, in mobilization of defense spending in, in Europe. So if the alliance is really against security threats, yes, people might not be happy being beaten up in public and being called names. But in the end of the day, since it is a security alliance and it's driven by a logic of providing security that everybody needs, um, isn't it going to function effectively because of that, because of the, the threat that uh, people are responding to? Yes and no. So yes, uh, on one level, on a very, very important level, day to day, the military operations, the political operations, the way in which the alliance operates is continuing uh, as before. Uh, the, the, the North Atlantic Council, which is where the decisions get made as ambassadors, where I used to sit, is continuing to meet and continue to decide things. The military command structure is integrated to being strengthened. There's more training, there's exercises, there's reinforcements, more equipment is being brought to bear. And in that sense, NATO continues to evolve in a, in a way to strengthen uh, the, the essence of the alliance. But the alliance is also built on a really important intangible trust and confidence. Because ultimately, if you're Estonia and you are unable to defend yourself against Russia, your security depends in having the confidence, the trust in your allies being willing to defend you, and particularly in the trust and confidence that the United States is willing to defend you, because the United States is the biggest, most important 
uh, military power. And this division, this debate, this haranguing of our allies is eroding trust. It's like in a marriage. When you start eroding trust, whether it's for infidelity or whatever other reason, when you start eroding it, rebuilding that trust, rebuilding the confidence in each other is something that takes time and often doesn't work. We've built up trust for 69 years. It's an incredibly important commodity that we have. And if you erode that, it is going to take a long time to get it back. So with this example, and just to push on the Estonia example a little bit, um, inside a marriage, you may have other partners that you can choose. Um, inside the alliance, does Estonia have other choices that it could make for its security, or is it stuck with the alliance? So yes, it would be better to have trust, but since it doesn't have another place to go, it's stuck, and therefore, again, it's not all that consequential, some might argue. Well, so the Estonians, uh, uh, they, they, the only other option they have is to give in to the Russians uh, and to basically say, if, we, if I can't rely on the protection that NATO provides, then perhaps I, I need to be nicer to the Russians to avoid them uh, infringing on our independence and our sovereignty. That's not an option that we as a NATO ally, alliance would want, because if the Estonians conclude that, maybe the Hungarians and the Poles and the Germans and God knows what, that means Russia gets a greater uh, degree of, of strength within Europe. And indeed, that's the point. Russia's goal, the Soviet goal, was to divide Europe, to divide NATO, and to divide the United States from Europe. That's Putin's goal today. It's been for 10 years. And if we play into that by having this kind of division that we are seeing in the last few weeks, in fact, in the last few months and even years, uh, then we're playing into Putin's hands. And what do you see as the, the fault lines along that division? You've written a bit about um, that there are new divisions happening in, in Europe. What are those fault lines? Well, there, there, there are a number of different. So one fault line is, is President Trump and his accounting uh, uh, you know, sense of what an alliance is about, which no one else in the alliance shares, although there's a kernel of truth, as there always is. Second division is an important division, is a political one. And we are, are seeing within Europe, uh, and indeed within North America, a split between an increasingly nationalist, increasingly anti-immigration, increasingly economically protectionist or nationalist, uh, and uh, pro-Russian, uh, and illiberal uh, order emerging led by people like Viktor Orban in Hungary or uh, uh, Tashup uh, Erdogan in Turkey or now in Italy, uh, Matteo Salvini uh, and, uh, and the, the Prime Minister Giuseppe Conti and indeed Donald Trump in the United States. And it's that alliance of sort of the nationalists against the more globalists, uh, the, the, uh, the more, the, as, the, as, as the president would call it, the more internationalist, the liberal the democracy upholding uh, folks in Germany, Merkel, May, uh, uh, to some extent in Britain, although she suffers from this problem too, Macron in France, and of course Trudeau in, in Canada, that is splitting the alliance in this, in, in this way. By the way, on one side, getting closer to Russia, on the other side, getting closer to uh, uh, an opposition to Russia. Terrific. And since you've raised Russia, let's go there, because immediately after this summit, um, 
Trump is headed to Helsinki. Monday, he'll be meeting with Vladimir Putin, uh, which provides a juxtaposition, right? The, the, the showdown with the allies that he's having right now in Brussels and then um, his interaction with Putin. What do you expect and what do you, are you concerned about from that meeting? Well, I'm concerned by, by what I expect. Here's what I hope. I hope that out of Brussels you have a united NATO, which you did with a, now this, this declaration that has been uh, agreed to, that the dis disagreements we heard on day one uh, give way to uh, backslapping and wonderful pictures in day two, that the president comes to Helsinki with a united NATO behind his back and says, Vladimir, I want to work with you, but we have real differences. We have differences over Ukraine. We have differences over Syria. We have differences over arms control. And we're not going to wipe away those differences. We're going to have to deal with those differences. And by the way, I've got all of Europe behind me uh, in dealing with this. So let's figure out how you are going to get out of Ukraine, how you are going to finally adhere to the ceasefire that you agreed in Syria and become a positive force in stabilizing Syria. Let's figure out a way in which we can move forward on arms control and abandon all, that, all the activities that are violating the arms control agreements that, they, that we signed. That would be a very positive uh, uh, way in which to enter the summit. Uh, whether it will result in agreement is TBD, but at least it sets us up for a dialogue that the Europeans and others can, can continue on as well. That's the hope. And what do you expect might happen? What's the fear? Well, the fear is, is that, in, as the president already indicated, this is going to be an easier meeting than the meeting in NATO. That, in fact, the divisions that we are seeing today within NATO uh, lead Trump to say, I need a success. I didn't have a success in NATO. Now I need a win. And maybe the win is to start agreeing to some things that he may not think are important. But Putin thinks are very important. And the Europeans think are very important. And the example, of course, is what happened just last month uh, when we had a terrible blow up with allies in the G7. And then the president went to Singapore and uh, uh, agreed to some steps that uh, weren't well received by some of uh, our allies, in this case, South Korea and Japan. And this was discontinuing the um, war planning, uh, the, the, the exercises, the, the military, the provocative, it, yeah, right? exactly. the provocative war game. So just consider Vladimir Putin having learned as a smart KGB analyst that he is. So he thinks that if I say that something is provocative, he may give in to me. So there are three things that the Russians think are most provocative. Number one is NATO enlargement, the fact that NATO is bringing in more allies. And you say, you know, it's very provocative, Donald. Why don't you agree not to do that anymore? Number two is the forward deployment of NATO troops, including U.S. troops in the Baltic states and Eastern Europe. And he said, Vladimir, Vladimir, Donald, it'd be great if you would stop doing that. In fact, it's a violation of an agreement we signed in 1997. Pull them back. And number three uh, would be your missile defense system in Poland and Romania, uh, which you say is about Iran, really is about us. It's very provocative. Please move it away. And Trump saying, I get it. I don't, I don't know what missile defense is doing in, in Poland and Ro Romania. I, I think he's right that being forward deployed is provocative. I think that enlargement is, is overblown. And he could, in one or all of these, say, I agree with you. These are major, major decisions that we have made within the NATO context and that we usually don't allow the Russians to tell us what it is that we're supposed to do. And at the very least, you would want to discuss with your NATO allies before you agree it, uh, with it. The precedent of Singapore is that the president is perfectly capable of agreeing to take steps that, although reversible, 
uh, maybe in the end, are deeply divisive within the alliance. And I would think would go to the point you made earlier about trust. If the president is willing to Absolutely. take away those things that are providing your, for your security, Estonia, I mean, that's having troops there provides the security. So there's a lot at stake for those it's, countries. It's, it's like you were out for the night and you didn't come back and you were out with someone else. And it really is, goes to the heart of the essence of the relationship, that you are willing to sell out your allies in order to have an improvement of relations with what they regard and we should regard as our adversary. So do we have a sense, do you have a sense of what the Trump, what President Trump and his administration's strategy toward Russia is? What does he want to achieve um, with, the with the Russian relationship? You've made a point on another Deep Dish episode that in some ways this administration has actually been, um, has been uh, stronger against Russia um, in some of the policies that it's pursued than the Obama administration had been. As you put all these pieces together, the concerns that you just talked about, the actions that they've taken in the past, is there a strategy emerging here? So uh, I think there is an administration strategy. Clearly, the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor have a very strong view with regard to Russia. They see it as an adversary, as a strong strategic competitor that needs to be deterred, defended against, and put in its place. Uh, that is where the U.S. Congress is. It's where the NATO alliance is. It's frankly where most people are. Where's Donald Trump? That is the question. Is he, is he with that fundamental set of arguments and is trying to figure out a way to maneuver uh, in, order to, in order to get a better deal? Uh, or is, in fact, uh, he not convinced that any of that is true? And nothing that we have heard or seen from uh, President Trump since the time he ran for president suggests that he sees Russia as an adversary, as a threat to the United States and its security interests. What he wants is a win. He always wants a win because it's all about winning. Uh, Donald Trump's essence is about winning, and, and that's what a real estate uh, businessman does. And if he doesn't get a win in Brussels, he needs one in Helsinki. And a win can be anything that he describes as a win. Uh, it could be a good agreement or it could be a bad agreement, depending on, uh, on, on how you look at it. We don't know. That's part of the problem. You talk to very senior administration officials. Europeans talk to people in the White House or the State Department. They say, I can tell you what my view is that we should do. I can tell you what I'm recommending the president to do. But I can't tell you what the president will do because he is his own man. So given that, um, and we'll see what happens, obviously, in Helsinki, and we don't know. You've laid out a positive scenario and a, and a concerning scenario. Um, President Trump certainly has been consistent with his critique of the allies and the alliance. And as this continues and his administration continues, and as, as you talked about earlier, there is the um, challenging the trust that underlines this relationship. Let's just say it continues along this very rocky road to the end of the Trump administration, either at the end of this four-year term or another, another four years after that, an eight-year term. Um, how much damage, long-term damage, can be done to the, to the alliance? Can it be put back together again at the end of a Trump administration? Would that likely happen? And does that have an implication for the long-term security of the United States? Uh, I think the longer this lasts, the worse the damage is going to be. Mm -hmm. The more mm -hmm. difficult it will be to, um, in one form or another, get it back uh, into place. And I think uh, if you think in one... Uh, term or two terms. Uh, maybe after one term, 
The damage done will be very, very significant, but the capacity to rebuild trust may, may still be there. But I don't think that if there is a re-election of Donald Trump, that the Europeans will no longer say, oh, it's not, it's just Donald Trump. They'll say, listen, this is the American public. This is the country that has elected its president. Let's take that as a sign that on this issue, as on other issues, we happen to fundamentally disagree. And we can no longer rely on America, not just the American president, but on America to be with us. So I do think that the election uh, is for many Europeans and many of our allies the key point uh, for deciding on whether trust and confidence can or cannot be rebuilt. And as we close, uh, well, people are watching the events of the next uh, few days, the NATO summit followed by the Putin-Trump uh, summit. What do you think is the most important underplayed, underemphasized um, uh, aspect of what we're going to see that people ought to keep in mind? What, what's not getting enough attention, which is going to be determinative of how important and what impact this has? I mentioned it a little before. I think the thing that people are not paying enough attention to is this emerging alliance of what we might call a illiberal, uh, democratically elected leaders within the Western alliance uh, who are in the main pretty close to Russia. Uh, and that is, that's, it's, it's Italy, it's Hungary, it's, it's Turkey, and I'm afraid it includes the United States under Donald Trump, who believe that an anti-immigrant, uh, very nationalistic, both economic and in other ways, uh, and, and, and in many ways, illiberal approach that looks at Russia as a partner rather than as a, uh, than as a challenge, is dividing uh, the West, because on the other side, are those who have a commitment to liberal democracy, to openness uh, in terms of uh, immigration and, and economic uh, matters, uh, and, and, and a non-nationalist but multilateral kind of uh, uh, disposition. And that those that division, which is very different than the division we have about 2% and those kinds of issues, is perhaps more lasting uh, than we realize, and we're seeing it emerging right now. Great. Terrific. Well, Ivo, thanks so much for joining us today and helping us follow the, uh, the, the events uh, unfolding and giving us a framework to understand not only day by day, tweet by tweet, but the broader context in which to see this, this set of uh, events. And thank you, our Facebook Live audience and those listening to joining us this week. Um, as a reminder, the opinions you heard today belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please let us know by tapping the subscribe button on your podcast app. You can find us under Deep Dish on Global Affairs, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would like this episode or benefit from hearing it, please tap the share button on your uh, app and send it to them as well. If you have questions about anything you heard today or if you want to know about upcoming episodes in advance, submit questions for upcoming guests or to join our Facebook group, um, please go to our Facebook group at Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This episode of Deep Dish was produced by Evan Fazio. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.